Hello and welcome to The Late Show with Nick Late. Thank you for subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher and also for your very kind reviews and star ratings. It means a lot and is greatly appreciated. If you haven't subscribed as yet, please do and the very latest episodes will download to your device of choice as soon as they drop. So today, as part of a special ongoing series, Nick, a master wordsmith and heavyweight copywriter for over 20 years, will be discussing, pondering, interrogating and enlightening us about, well, that that very subject of copywriting. And as part of this series, we hope you will submit questions and thoughts about the challenges and successes you face when it comes to this aspect of marketing your own business. I'm not Nick, my name's Rob, but this is Nick. How are you, Nick? I'm all right, Rob. Copywriting is something which I've always wanted to talk about. It's something I've done for 23 years, Mm -hmm. and I think it's finally time, and this will be the first time, that I have spoken openly about the dark arts (laughs) of copywriting. (laughs) It's just because I was talking to my um, gym teacher Uh earlier today, and I said, I'm going to talk about copywriting today. And she kind of looked puzzled. I thought, well, I've talked to her about... advertising writing before and she said oh yes it is quite difficult these days on YouTube you know um, know, whether someone owns the the, the copyright Mm -hmm. or not and I said it's not that kind of copyright (laughs) so let's just just from the top of the show so we never have to mention it again there's two types of copywriting it's uh, what is it when two words sound the same there's copywriting as in the copyright of something Mm R-I-G-H-T which is as everyone knows it's essentially someone's intellectual property Mm -hmm. that involves lawyers and it involves um, patents and all that kind of stuff that's not the kind of copywriting I do Um, the kind of copywriting we're going to talk about here is copywriting I should find the entomology of where it all came from originally I presume it's something to do with press actually Mm -hmm. but copywriting it's writing copy and copy as in words, basically. And I think as we go through uh, today's session and other sessions, copy isn't just going to... I'm not only going to be talking about advertising copy as most people know it, or even uh, even if people are involved in um, some forms of marketing, what they think copy is. Mm-hmm. What I want to do is kind of broaden that definition out. And I think that in a way, copy is now every single written communication that that we have that you have any business has with its prospects and customers that is every single even if it's not leading directly to a sale every piece of written communication um, should be considered as copy and should I would argue and from my from my, um, from my experience should uh, be con- should be treated in such a way that uh, um, that inherently copy can be used to uh, influence in the in a positive sense mm-hmm. to entertain and ultimately to move people to a call to action. Um, you mentioned you described me as a master wordsmith. That's, That's something- the kind of phrasing I, I know you'd hate. Well, it is, and that's why you did it, I know. Um, but master word, smith. Uh, and in a way, smithy, I don't mind that. The mm-hmm. smithy the craft. In, it is more of a, it is a craft. Mm-hmm. It is a craft. It's an art. It's a science. Um, there is a bit of black magic involved. <laughs> but uh, that'll be, that'll come later. Copywriting heavyweight. Now, it's interesting you use that term. I was going to take offence at it, because I thought it was something to do with weight. But it's not. Actually, copywriting heavyweight is a term that is used in more above-the-line advertising. When I mean above-the-line advertising, I mean brand advertising. The When someone automatically talks about copyright, advertising copywriter, you think about um, uh, those people who write ad, um, short copy, mm-hmm. copy for TV ads, copy for post um, posters, all that kind of stuff. Now, in recruitment, they talk about lightweight, not lightweight, I'm not sure if they do lightweight, but they do middleweight, mm-hmm. heavyweight, mm-hmm. and that's a description of... Junior and senior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they, and they do use the term um, heavyweight copywriter. Um, but as you know, as we talk now, I'm going to talk about, I'm not, I never, even though I wanted to be one of those copywriters, thankfully, I never became one of those copywriters. So I have done... Yeah, let's, let's hear a little as, bit more about your background and your sure. experiences and influences as a copywriter. Well, I'm going to... I'm going to start before I'm being a copywriter. The 
you know, why did I get into copy in the first place was I, I don't know if I've told this story before, I may have done, but I always liked art and uh, the creative expression. So when I was 18, it was always I liked uh, writing and I liked uh, art. So I think I did, I did my A-levels and did terribly. I think I got a... E uh-huh. D was it an E or a D? It was an E in English. Very memorable. And I'm pretty sure an E in art as well. Okie dokie. So really, really bad. But I knew I was good at it, and I was at that point where I was just trying to buck against authority, buck against rules, and all that kind of stuff. And that actually landed me with really bad grades. So I decided to go to art college. Uh, and forgot about writing for a while. That kind of went one way. And again, I was kicking against authority as usual. And I got to a point where I thought, okay, that's not going to be a good good angle. So, And I was reading a lot. I've always, I've always read from... Well, I've always read. I didn't really start reading seriously until well, at 14 or 15, going and picking my own mm-hmm. um, books and uh, being influenced by writers directly. And we'll probably talk about that later. I'm talking about fiction here, we're talking about. Fiction, mm-hmm. absolutely, yeah. Um, I don't know if it's like a, a, a youthful thing, but I was the first stuff I was reading was... Actually, no, the earliest stuff, and this, this might have a connection with good copy, is I remember my granddad used to have all the Alistair MacLean books. Okay. So I used to have written Len Dayton, which was a Len Dayton, spider. I know. Len, I'm not familiar with MacLean. It's the same kind of MacLean war like novels Eagles. and that yes, kind of... Yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. So it was uh, uh, Where Eagles Dare, uh-huh. and uh, the Len Dayton was all Funeral in Berlin and all yes. that kind of stuff. Yes. So it was uh, war or spies. And it was... They were, <laughs> but they were um, airport books, essentially. They were mm-hmm. page turners. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not page turns compared to what we have now so there was a bit more density to them but I remember those are some of the first books I ever read and were and felt influenced by Mm -hmm. after that I was into oh horror I think that's another so Stephen King so that was a big influence on me and Stephen King actually has written one of the best books on copywriting I know it sounds strange, but it's called Stephen King. It's called On Writing, mm-hmm. and it can it, it's in my top ten. And I will we can give you a link at the end of this of where you can go and uh, find downloads for my favourite copywriting books. But Stephen King On Writing is an essential book for anyone who is involved in creating content, creating marketing copy. And I didn't know it at the time. I just loved his books. I loved Salem's Lot. And it was all like the early stuff. Mm-hmm. Say, like the Carrie, uh, Stand, Salem's Lot, as I said, uh, The Shining. Mm-hmm. And just how well, um, again, it was kind of pot boiler stuff, but it was brilliantly written. Whether some people didn't see it as literary, literary fiction. Um, but I still loved it. And also, I was getting into at that point uh, William Burroughs, mm-hmm. who was a copywriter as well, he remarkably wasn't. Oh, I not that I know of. That is an interesting. Th- According to he... Wikipedia, he was. But William, we can't William, take Wikipedia William at face value. William S. Burroughs was a copywriter. Yes, I was looking up some uh, some copywriters earlier, and uh, among uh, William S. Burroughs, I thought was a fascinating one because you can't imagine Naked Lunch as anything like that. But uh, in, uh, other novelists like Peter Carey, Faye Weldon, yeah. Dashiell Hammett. Salman Rushdie, Don DeLillo. I actually met, I'll tell you who else was, um, Kurt Vonnegut, who's mm-hmm. another one of my favourite writers. Yep. He was. Joseph Heller was, and I met Joseph Heller once, and he wow. was He was talking about being a copywriter. And I cannot remember what <laughs> it was about, but it, the, the, the Joseph Heller, Catch-22 and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, he was a copywriter as well, and he he pretty much hated it. But uh, yeah, Salman Rushdie, Faye Weldon, all those people that you mentioned. Terry Gilliam, Alan Parker. People like Alan these Parker are, is very famous yeah, work in advertising. All, but, I would uh, say these are all different types of uh, okay. copywriters. Well, maybe we should differentiate those. Yes, well, in just, uh, yeah, we can do that in a bit. But um, So yeah, I was into reading. I, I hadn't done very well academically. Ended, but short story, I went away to Polytechnic as it was then. Um, did a course which allowed me to do writing, ended up doing creative writing as a um, as a kind of a major in that and did uh, poetry. And I got involved quite heavily in the local poetry 
um, scene mm-hmm. in uh, I was at, at Polytechnic it was the worst it actually turned out to be very good but because of my grades I really couldn't get into anywhere that good at that time so I ended up it was called the Polytechnic of Wales mm-hmm. and this was in Treforest in near well it's right next door part of Pontypridd mm-hmm. and it was the most famous thing about it was that uh, it's where Tom Jones hails from is he it actually, yeah, yeah we used to go to the pub can't remember the name, but it was literally about two or three doors up from <laughs> where Tom used to live. Um, and he did used to visit. I never saw him, but uh, people did say that he used to visit. But I got into... Uh, yeah, and The lesser spotted Tom Jones. Yes, no, absolutely. And, and uh, Treforest is... It, it, it's a... How can I put it? It's a mining town. Mm-hmm. So it's a quite rough, tough place. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is an element also of people speaking... Uh, Welsh, uh, Welsh speakers, which is quite unusual in, in, in the South, I believe. And there was a poetry uh, group that I used to go to called Numina Writers. And New, New, Numina, New, uh, N-O-U-M-E-N-A. I think it means kind of, uh, of the spirit or something. Oh, I'm like not that. familiar with New, that. Okay. Numinal. Numinal. Mm-hmm. But, um, and it was really good. And there were some really great writers there. Um and I can't remember their names at the moment. I did meet Labby Sifri there, actually. Mm. Yes. Now, poetry is very interesting because uh, dealing with structure and concision, yep. and density of yep. emotion and yep. thought. Yeah, I forgot. I forget all that. <laughs> no, I didn't do any of that stuff. No, 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 no. Because I was, by the time I was there, I was again trying to push against uh, convention. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very much an experimental writer. Okay. So I... No rules. No, well, no, there were rules. It was... I was kind of tied between two because by, by that time I, I was doing my degree um, and I was very much into James Joyce and I was reading Ulysses. Mm-hmm. Equally, I was reading a lot of Samuel Beckett. Mm-hmm. So you've got James Joyce who, uh, with Ulysses, I don't want to, to turn this into a kind of a literary discussion, but he was um, loading language mm-hmm. with multiple meanings, multiple levels. So Ulysses is supposed to be a day in the life of... Uh, Bloom in in Dublin in 1916 or 1906 or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it was also paralleled with Ulysses as in the Greek myth, and then you'd have a bit of Hamlet in there, and you have history, and all these different things mixed up parts of the body. Each chapter was, and there's a copyright in that actually, at the newspaper. I can't remember which section it is. So you had this kind of uh, modernist um, language where uh, there could be multiple meanings and multiple levels. And then you had the stripped down version where you had Beckett, Beckett, where he really stripped mm-hmm. language down to its barest bones, where it was hardly language at all. Mm-hmm. So I was breathe the play, for instance. But yeah. then, so I was in between those two, and very experimental. And I saw those as the last writers really um, around um, the end of writing in a way. You couldn't go further than James Joyce and. Uh, Finnegan's Wake, which mm-hmm. came after, mm-hmm. which is still one of the most impenetrable novels. I have read it all. Um, I cannot remember much of it or any of it. Um, and Beckett. So I went to, I, I, I did very well and I started to really get, enjoy writing. Writing in terms of writing, not so much to communicate, because I wasn't really trying to communicate meaning, mm-hmm. but it was enjoying the actual process of writing, mm-hmm. of actually doing that as something I actually enjoy, an activity that I enjoy. Um, so I finished that degree, did fine. Um, then I decided, right, what am I going to do next? I'm going to keep writing. So I then went to um, University of East Anglia, which is a proper university yep. at the other end. And I ended up on, after my second attempt at the doing the MA in creative writing with Malcolm Bradbury, mm-hmm. who, who's no longer with us, who um, had written something called The History Man. He was a very, very well-respected uh, writer and lecturer and cultural critic. Mm-hmm. Was he, Andrew Motion there when you were there? No, well? he came. Yeah. He came afterwards. Actually, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and they never. They'd never had someone accepted who was like me. They said that I was essentially a poet and doing experimental prose. And this will. And this does make sense eventually for the reason why you know why the kind of copy I do now is that. Um, so yeah, so it was. Uh, Mark and Bradbury started the course back in 1917. His first pupil and the only pupil in that year was Ian McEwan. 
who has gone on since I'm sure he's won the Booker Prize at least once. He's done all right. He's yeah. done all right. Yeah. He's done all right. And there's been Kashawish Guru. Um, and there's a whole bunch of people. I think the woman who wrote Chocolat, I think she was on it. Okay. But anyway, there's lots of people who've been on that course. And at the time, it was very, it was one of the only courses when I went in 92. It was one of the only courses uh, for creative writing. Uh, so it's extremely hard to get on. Um, but I got there on the second attempt. And despite thinking that it was going to be a great experience, it probably was the worst experience I'd ever had. <laughs> <laughs> I tried all this and it cost me a fortune to do it. And it it pretty much stopped me writing creatively for over 20 years. Okay. I've start, I have start, I did start again and that will come, come later. But the whole of the course was geared towards getting agents, getting okay. published. Very professional. Oh, yes, absolutely professional. And it is a brilliant course if that's what you want to do. Literary mm. fiction as is, uh, yeah, most people would define. But I was trying, always trying to do something more experimental. And people used to say, if you just made it a bit more, mm. um, uh, you know, a bit more clarity to what you were doing, a bit more mm. transparency, um, not quite as experimental, you'll do fine. And you know, you're a great writer, they said, and all this kind of stuff. So I tried to compromise, and I just turned out rubbish. It's never for the reader, is it? Let's face it. No, it never was. No, it never <laughs> That's was. a joke, obviously. No. But, uh, so I got to the end of it, and yeah, I'd done the course, I'd had the experience, and I realised that I had this huge debt for you know for a student, and how on earth was I going to make any money? So I thought, what can I do to get this money? So I thought, well, what's the thing I enjoy most? It's writing. Mm-hmm. So I thought, right, I'm going to find a job doing writing. What kind of writing gets can make you can make money at? And I thought, oh, it's copywriting. I didn't really know what copywriting was apart from, uh, you know, that kind of uh, a miles a day helps you work, rest and play and all that, that kind of short copy. Mm-hmm. So I was looking, like as many people do or did, uh, looking through The Guardian, and then I saw an ad for uh, a junior copywriter. And I applied for it, and it was with Fleet Street Publications. Um, and it was for a junior copywriter for financial newsletters, to write promotions for financial newsletters. So I went for the interview, and I should say the very first person I met at that company was Eloise, and she made me a cup of tea or coffee. Um she was, I think she was marketing at the time. So literally from the first day of me kind of becoming a copywriter, I'd met... Crikey, Eloise. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, so I got the job and I was living miles away at the time and it was 12 grand a year, I think. Gosh. Um, and so even then in 92, that wasn't very much money and I was terribly in debt. And... Um, but I, I kept working at it, and I and so I the yeah. What happened there is I lucked out in a big way because it wasn't the normal kind of copy that I'm talking about that you know that most people think yeah Mars a day and all that kind of stuff. That short logos. I'm just about to have a drink. Oh, I'll, I'll speak while you slurp. And, Thank uh, you. No, so uh, uh, yeah. it, it, you said 30, uh, 13,000, 12,000? 12, 12, no, 12, so 000. I was offered 13,000 for my first job and nearly 15 years later in in magazines. So really? the money doesn't get better. But it does in copywriting. Well, and that's why I'm here to this. Because I, I found very quickly that the kind of copy we're doing, um, Fleet Street Publications was owned by a, an American company. And this American company was called mm-hmm. Agora. Mm-hmm. At the time, they, um, they were relatively small. I think they had less than 100 people in America, uh, in Baltimore. But there, the owner was a guy called Bill Bonner. And he was, he was originally a copywriter. He'd become a publisher. He'd started his own business. He, I think one of the early letters he did was a, it was a kind of a tax letter on how to reduce tax legally. Um, then he did something uh, called International Living, which was about uh, Americans becoming expats and living mm-hmm. in different parts of the world. And he had also started to do financial newsletters. Um, some, there was a technology newsletter. This was back in the this was back in the late eighties. I think he started that. It's called Taipan. I think it's still going. Then there was the Oxford Club, which was a kind of a um, a club really for where well, it was a club. That's why it's called um, Oxford Club for. Um, investors so it would 
introduce people to different investments. But anyway, it was basically newsletters. And the way they promoted things was through direct mail. This was pre-internet. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd started pre-internet, and I, so it was 93, 92, 93. I started there, and it was all direct mail. So I was immersed into the world of direct mail and direct response copywriting. Mm-hmm. Now, again, for, if people don't know what uh, direct mail or direct response is, the direct mail or direct response means that the copy isn't used essentially to do anything other than get a sale mm-hmm. or get a response. So with direct mail, you would send a letter out or whatever it might be in the post to um, a list and it would go essentially cold to that, to that list. They'd open it up and inside there's a letter and the letter um, sells a product or sells a service or a product. And at the end of that letter, there would be a call to action and there would be a coupon or some kind of a form that mm-hmm. was with in physical product, a physical print would be um, in that le- with that letter and people would ha- be asked to fill out the form, send a check or put your credit card details or whatever it would be and then they'd have to put it into an envelope which people which would also have been in the package. This must have out. taken days to complete. It's... Um, <laughs> not always, not always. But but you, this is another inter- this is another interesting tip that you would have to tell. I was always, you've always got to tell people. It almost sounds like it's being condescending, but you say, take, there's, uh, fill out the form, make sure your name is correct, fill it out, then put that into the envelope. Mm-hmm. The envelope is provided. You don't need a stamp. Close that up. Then take it to your nearest post box and put it in. And we'd have to say this. We'd say this two or three times. And I always said, why? And I asked, why, why, why do we have to do this? Because people don't read in a linear way. They don't necessarily take in the information um, fully each mm-hmm. time. So that when you get to the important bit, which is asking for the sale, which mm-hmm. is the call to action, that's why we tend to repeat it. And if you have a look on, um, if you watch stuff like uh, shopping channels and all that sort of kind of stuff, you'll see that they uh, very much walk people through the call to action. Pick up the phone now and call this number, da, da, and they'll, they'll read out the number, and then they'll say, take people through the exact steps of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a seduction. I know, I know you've written this before. It's about wooing a customer. And I very much like to talk about that in in terms of what should good copy do in maybe maybe just a moment. But well, yeah, let's talk about that in a second. Let me just okay, because I'm guessing. Well, yeah, that- I think that's a good. It's a good point to actually talk about. I mean, good copy. It's, it's better to ask is what is, from my point of view, and the way I was taught with direct mail, direct response, which can be applied to any type of business, or to, you know, direct response especially. But direct mail, we had to send out, uh, they're very, it's very expensive to do, it's mm-hmm. not like doing, sending emails now. Um, you had to send, get something printed, and it had to be then mailed out, and that costs money, and people have to handle it to send it out, and all that, that kind of stuff. So the copy has to, by the end of this, uh, um, you know, you sent out this direct mail piece, people have to take action, and the idea is for people to then send you money, essentially. Now, good copy in direct mail means it's easy to tell what... to send it back. Do you get money coming in on the other side? So I always remember that, and this... It's a shame that we can't do it anymore, but in those days, and this was like in the mid-90s, I remember when I was writing packs... You would wait, and we would get the sacks of mail would come into uh, the London office, and I would, and people still, and I did this even when I was a publisher. I would open up uh, the mail, and I would get in, in the way of like the person who was in the post room, and I would just help help them. We're not getting their way. I would do that, help them do their job because mm-hmm. I wanted to have a look and see what was coming in. Mm-hmm. Now, I was lucky that whether it was through my copy or that. It was good. We used to see stuff coming in, and there's nothing like seeing wads and wads of. Sometimes it'd be checks, sometimes it'd be people's bank cards, and just these orders coming in. And I remember one editor once said to me, uh, his name was Malcolm Craig of Stock Market Confidential, and he he he, he said, yeah, "Isn't it incredible what you actually do if you think about it? That you can send out, you can write something to someone you've never met, and then they will." Uh, act upon your words and send you money and they've never met you before 
and that and that did amaze me that you know you'd see these sacks coming in and you mm-hmm. kind of knew the physical well, proof yes. of your success so in, in, around that time with that in that medium what would be considered obviously I'm, I'm sure amounts would be considered a good hit rate but what would be considered a good hit rate when, in terms of response oh right well with direct mail it's, it's strange this this kind of rate has has not really changed that much but direct mail if you've got if you're going to a good list if you've got and I'm talking about it all depends on the price but let's say it was, it's a sub 100 pound product um, you would be looking at if you've got 2% or more mm-hmm. actual response then it was looking good gotcha it was looking good so you'd always want to um, now I don't want to go into too much about how because with subscriptions it's different because and this could be a whole new podcast and we could get Eloise to talk about this is that when it's subscriptions you get um, upfront. You get you get the first year and then which is usually discounted, and then people hopefully if you provide a great uh, service they uh, subscribe year on year on an annual subscription. So sometimes we wouldn't actually make any money in the first year, but you knew that if uh, based upon the past mm-hmm. you're delivering a great product, mm-hmm. a certain percentage of people will convert to the second year. They will renew, and that's when you start making money. So in a way, I used to love it because it meant that both the content the editorial content of what we published because they were stock tip newsletters, stock analysis, market analysis, all that kind of stuff had to be um, really, really good because you in the first year we might go down to 70% to break even. So in other words, for every pound that you we paid for the actual um, mailing, we would only get 70p back. So we, you lose money. Mm-hmm. We would lose money in that first year but we could do. We knew that we could go to seventy percent break even, which means to lose money to get more people in. Yeah. So that because you knew that because you again you deliver great service, people go, oh yes, I want to continue getting that, and they would. So you would. It would take time to get money, but then you would get it would be good money down the line. So it was, it was the easiest way to gauge the effectiveness of your copy is because you would see the response. You'd be paid. <laughs> You'd be paid. And yeah, yeah, I used to get bonuses for for um, beating control because this was another thing and it's another essential thing which is about split testing. And this could be something else that we could talk about in a future one. Split testing is essentially when you make sure, how can you tell whether your promotion, your copy, your ad, whatever it is, is any good? What you have in direct response is you have what's known as the control and then a test. So you would have, for example, if you if you'd, it's kind of chicken and the egg. So let's say that you, you you've got a promotion for a certain product and it's proven itself at a certain level. And then what you do is you do you create a new ad ad or new headline or new direct mail piece and you do an A B split effectively you let's say if you went sent 5,000 um, pieces of mail f- with the control which mm-hmm. is the one that you've already is the one that you normally yep. use and then you would send out 5,000 uh, of the test so they would go head to head same list now that would be a more scientific way and this is where direct response direct mail direct marketing is based on it's the science bit it's a bit that I'm not very usually very good at but something that Eloise is brilliant at but it's all it's it's analyzing the results based upon uh, returns so if you've got um, let's say a 2% response from the control but you then you had a 3% response on the test mm-hmm. it would mean that looks that's a pretty uh, definitive certainly significant proportion yeah, yeah so you might want to retest it but that's how we used to improve copies so then if the test becomes control, then you uh, the test becomes control, and then you have to create a new test to go against that control. So for years and years, we were essentially always sometimes trying to beat our previous marketing piece. Mm-hmm. And when the, when the uh, when the business was relatively small, it was me writing against myself, and so there was very much a lot of competition, and it was seeing what those results were of ads. Uh, of uh, direct mail pieces I was also when I first started I was also writing ads that were going in a telegraph uh, where else did we go the mail mm-hmm. and that was for a newsletter called Penny Share Guide 
which, as the name suggests, is to do with... Uh, do I do, oh, yeah, do Penny Share Guide, New Issue Share Guide, and Stock Market Confidential. And these were... Because it was still post um, the whole share explosion, mm-hmm. uh, shareholder explosion in the late 80s, 80s when yeah. it mm-hmm. was uh, uh, British Telecom, yeah. shares, and all that kind of stuff, yeah. that there was that was the first time that people in the UK really were thinking about buying and selling shares. Normally, they would be in their pensions, and it would be at such a, a, a great remove, or it was people with high net worth individuals who were doing it, and they would have stockbrokers to do it. But we were working at that point on, um, it, there was a huge surge in popularity. So we were doing ad, ads in the newspapers. Now you can't, you can sometimes do the split tests in the newspapers because you could, some newspapers I think would allow you to do a different print run. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe sure a that. different part of the country. Yes, or something exactly. Like that, yeah. But they don't. They don't do that anymore because I don't think... Because they don't really exist. No, and the circulation's not big enough. But, so I would also be writing those those ads. And again, it was direct response, but it wasn't necessarily tested against anything else. But what we would do is the copy was good if someone would actually fill in the coupon. There's usually a coupon at the the bottom of the Mm -hmm. ad. And so it would say, get a free copy of Penny Share Guide... And so, we, oh, sorry, these would be two-step, these would sometimes be called two-step ads, where you would have an ad, you'd say, for a free, uh, get a free copy of Penny Share Guide and discover how, and then say, you know, how you can invest in, sh- in shares of pennies and they could become pounds, all that kind of stuff. So people would either call or send the coupon in and then they would, we would then send them through the post the control copy version of, let's say, the Penny Share Guide direct mail piece. So it's a two-step because you would get people to respond once by asking for the promotion and then you would have, so let's say for every, let's say 100 people responded, you'd send 100 pieces of uh, the mail out and then you might get a slightly higher percentage because people are already engaged, let's say 10% of people would buy. So for every uh, 100 people who request um, more information, ten percent would actually end up buying. Mm-hmm. So again, it was measured very, very specifically. So it's very much different to what uh, when it comes to brand advertising, where the only way that some of these huge, big corporations and brands and, and uh, advertise can actually work out if they are getting any um, any response. Most adverts do not are not direct response. They are not direct. Mail, uh, not direct mail. Uh, there's no direct. It's not direct marketing. Mm-hmm. So that it's brand awareness. Yeah. So they would. Um, the only way that they could usually find out would be to go to um, uh, kind of uh, focus groups, and it would be, do you recognise this brand? Do you recognise this ad? And so there would be, or doing surveys and all that kind of stuff. So it's very much a slower process. So the copywriting. Um, I mean, I was never involved in that type of copy and I wouldn't, even though I wanted to be in it, it would be very frustrating for me as a copywriter if I went into it now thinking, well, how do I know? I need to know that the, the copy that I've been using, yeah. I'm, I've, I've worked, I would actually get a result. Um, so that's partly that's partly the science and that was how it was for, for years and years, a few years it's in, still in your now. career. No, it's still now. I think, and I think that a lot of people now realise, especially with um, on the digital side, if, yeah. you're, if you're doing ads on, uh, if you're doing Google AdWords or you're doing ads on Facebook, if you're doing email marketing, all of them can be measured. So has the explosion of digital during your career been one of the biggest shifts uh, in the copywriting landscape? What's the difference between online and offline copy? None. None at all? None. Not the, the fundamentals of copy are exactly the same, but the mode in which I think, one, there's the, there's the human at the end of it. You've got somewhat the reader, the, per, 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 the person you are trying to mm-hmm. um, attract their attention. Mm-hmm. So you have, there's a difference between, and this is one of the things when I'm teaching copywriting, is more and more I'm talking about what, kind of person where is that person and what what kind of um, environment are they experiencing mm-hmm. your copy now this might sound a bit um, 
esoteric, but let, let me take it back to direct mail. Yeah. Now, you know that you can imagine yourself, and it's very easy in, in a way that with direct mail, someone will go to their doorstep and on the, from the mat, they will pick up a whole pile of, of mm-hmm. mail. Mm-hmm. Now, that mail, we always used to be taught that um, when copy co- when um, the, the, your, the end user is standing over a waste paper bin. Mm-hmm. So they're standing over this waste paper bin with a big wadge of envelopes. Now, some of those envelopes, you're going to be able to tell immediately what they are. Some of them, if you've got something with a stamp and handwritten, that's going to look, ah, that's going to look personal. Put that to one side. Something that maybe looks like a circular, the stuff that we get through, you can mm-hmm. just chuck, can chuck that mm-hmm. because it's not something you're looking for and you know that it's, it, it's untargeted, unsolicited. Then you're going to get stuff like bills, bank statements. So those, the look of them, you kind of, either it's going to say whichever the bank is on it, or it's going to have a certain feel, it's going to have a certain window on mm-hmm. the envelope. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to put that to one side. So as people are looking at, and sometimes you know, um, envelopes would have copy on them. It would have, um, it might have, uh, the name of a company it might have even um, an image on it it might have um, some enticing copy on it as well so as even though we, um, that, I mean I could do a whole thing on just envelope copy where yes you, I mean some people would go to the extent and it would work uh, of making something look with a live stamp in other words a stamp that's been stuck down and handwritten mm-hmm. you're going to get a good open rate on that uh, but you're going to also piss people off a bit when they open it up and go oh hold on you're just it's just someone selling I don't know pork sausages or something whatever it would be so what you want to do though is make sure that you aren't dropped in the bin so then someone might go from the bin and they're going to be sitting at their desk and they're going to be looking through the copy looking through the um, the mail now when they get to yours the only thing you've got to do the first thing you have to do is and you're, and you're understanding that they are making these choices and they've probably made these choices and then they've got, for one reason or another, they haven't thrown yours away. Pro- maybe because um, it's got some enticing copy on the envelope. Mm-hmm. This could be the equivalent of a headline or uh, in a, you can see the equivalence of it. It could be a, like a headline on a ad on Google or Facebook. It's going, oh, that, that, that's something that I might be interested in. They open the envelope. All the envelope copy... It was on there, just like if we're thinking about Facebook ads, mm-hmm. all that copy is trying to do is get them to open the envelope yep. or click on the link. Mm-hmm. That's all it's got to do. Once you've got that, so then going from the, from the direct mail example, inside the direct mail envelope, you're going to have a letter. And you might have some other elements as well. You're going to have an order form and you might have a return envelope. Now... For them to decide whether to, to keep reading and not throw it away, they're probably going to look at the letter first. They're going to look at the headline of the letter. Is that headline targeted at them? Is it something which is going to uh, stir up self-interest? Is it something which could, they could see as beneficial to them? Mm-hmm. Is it something that is credible? So there's lots of things, elements that go into that. They'll also, interestingly, would look at the... The person who signed off, they would most a lot of people would go to um, the end of the letter and they would read who it's from, and that's why mm-hmm. uh, in, in a lot of letters you would see there's always a PS. And we used to, you know, there had to be a PS gotcha. because a lot of people would just jump to the end. And what you want your PS to do or you, in direct mail is to sum up the best benefit of your offer because mm-hmm. sometimes people go, Oh, right. So people don't, don't read things uh, in a linear fashion, even offline. They don't online because people's eyes jump all over the place and equally with direct mail. So all your headline is then doing, so you've got, the, you've got them to open. They look at your headline or the PS and that is enough for them simply to go to the next line. So let's just presume they've looked at the, the headline all the headline tries to do is to capture their attention and enough interest to go to the first line of the copy. Even before that, you might have the salutation. 
So that's why, again, there's, there could, I could speak for quite a while about different types of salutation. Mm-hmm. But this all comes down to research and to knowing your prospect, which we can talk, talk about at another time. Every line of copy, and this is the way I've, I've always been taught, is that what I was taught, and it's what I've seen through proof, through money coming in the door. Every, and when I teach people, when I edit copy, every line of copy must lead on to the next. Mm-hmm. And what you're essentially doing is taking someone from, if it's direct mail, from the envelope to the order form, to putting that order form, making that action, whatever, the check or writing the cup, and putting it into the post box. The whole point of that journey, so you're taking people on a journey, mm-hmm. and that is exactly the same. The journey may have, you know, with, with direct mail, it may only have two or three different elements that people go through and do. Uh, whereas if it's online, if there's anything that's changed, the actual copy itself hasn't changed. The principles of persuasive copy have not changed, but the number of steps that people may take mm-hmm. in that journey to the actual sale yeah. may be a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Now, that is different on, if you think about Amazon or eBay, in a way, that's quite close to being direct response mm-hmm. because you go on there and you go and you either buy it or you don't. Yeah. And they know that for everyone who goes on there, if they buy, that's uh, they can measure that. Of course. And it's, it is pretty quick, uh, in a way, like direct mail. But if you've got, let's say, you've got cold people, see, they see, say, see a Facebook ad, they click on it, and then they might be taken through to a landing page. Now, that landing page might be a free report, let's say, uh, what we'd call a lead magnet. So all you're asking them to do there is, in exchange for that, that either watching a video or whatever they can download. I'm just using examples. There's lots of different ways that this can be done. Mm-hmm. You're asking them, all that landing page is trying to do is get them to trust you enough to and see enough value to give, to give their personal details. Get them in the funnel. To get their name and email <laughs> address and sometimes depending on the kind of prospect, it could be a lot more information. The business to business, you will find that uh, would ask a lot more, ask for a lot more uh, details to qualify people um, but then again so once people have gone through there they may go on to that they will go onto the list because you've got the email address now they haven't bought anything but they have made a small um, action mm-hmm. well they've made two actions now they've made an action you've got them to act by clicking on an ad let's say or it could be a social media it could be a tweet it could be a personal thing it all depends it depends on your audiences, LinkedIn or what, whatever it might be. So you've got an ad that might lead to a landing page. And the landing page, you've gone from a click to what is essentially people typing, filling in some details. Uh-huh. Then they might get an email saying, thank you very much, you've just signed up. By the way, we've got this interesting offer on right now, you might want to buy it. You might be interested in it. And that is an opportunity for copy then to um, monetize those, uh, um, that prospect. Mm-hmm. They may not buy. And so they may go on to, they'll go in a, a, a good business if they're capturing names in whichever way they're capturing them. The more they can be in communication with those names... Uh, those prospects and talking about, I mean, and again, this is something we can talk about in a whole new, in, as part of the series, is that people will, when they come through, you are then in a conversation with them. Mm-hmm. It was very, you can't do that in direct mail because it's so expensive. You can't keep sending stuff out. Sure. But, the, but we, we used to through the newsletters. So we'd have monthly newsletters going out. And that's why I, the content of newsletters is as much and this is like the content of a newspaper or a magazine is reselling is an opportunity to communicate, to strengthen a bond and to sell. Mm-hmm. Whether you're selling directly right then or you're selling at a future date. So it's a long-winded way of saying that. Does that make sense? The, oh, it all makes the, complete the, the, there sense. Is no, there is no real difference the fundamental um, how good copy works mm-hmm. is because good copy gets people to um, take certain action, and it's not to do with manipulation or well, you can do manipulation. You can try and rip people off, and it's a good copywriter could rip people off. Um, 
And you could, you could be unscrupulous with it because good copy does persuade people to do things, but you're going to get caught out. You're going to get a bad reputation. You're going to get, get done for fraud. You're going to get chased away. You're going to go to hell. Oh, well, you're not going to go to hell. But you're going to have a karmic, you're going to have a karmic uh, event. It's got to be done ethically. It's got to be done with integrity. And it's got to be done, and this is how I've always done it, is because that's just the way I've brought up. It's just to be, you know, you want to be nice to people. You don't want to be nasty to people. So the whole point of copy is to sustain that relationship, which is at a distance, essentially, because it's not face-to-face, um, and to, at some point, make sure that you can um, match the prospect with an offer, something that's going to help them. And so, and you're not going to, I mean, and again, this is something else that we could go on, for, I could talk about for a long time, and I think we will do in the future ones, is that the greatest copy in the world, if it goes to the wrong audience, is going to be rubbish. It's ne- nothing's going to happen. You're not going to make any sales. So, so is that the main mistake that people make with their copy? Is that the primary boost? Sometimes, I mean, I'm just trying to think of the primary problems with copy. There's just bad copy, which doesn't do the things that I've just been suggesting. It doesn't effectively flag down uh, the prospect in a way that um, appeals to their self-interest, has inherent value. In other words, do I, um, if you're looking at something, it, does it solve a problem? Does it solve their problem? Does it um, help them to gain a certain skill or a certain end result? Mm-hmm. Every single piece of copy, the kind of copy I'm talking about, must imply in a way that you are going to get a certain end result. Any pro- you know, the products that we that um, that I've always been involved with. Will it help someone make a better financial decision? Will it make someone make a make money from investing in particular shares? Will it make sure that people don't have to pay um, the government so much tax completely legally? I should say. Uh-huh. Does it mean how can people make sure that they uh, can pass on their uh, inheritance to? to their family, how can people make sure that they don't get ripped off going on holiday. All products in one way or another transform people. They're there to transform either to satisfy in one way to um, get people free of pain, to get people to overcome problems or to make them feel better. So there is a kind of transformation that's going on. Bad copy doesn't, never transforms because it doesn't turn um, the words do not pers- turn someone in, it does not create the action that's desired. So it is very much like alchemy, the <laughs> idea of alchemy. You are, tra- you are turning w- one state of reality into another. I've, that's how I approach copy at its most fundamental level. And it may be something that no one ever talks about, but for me... And I know one of my mentors, Mark Ford, who I will talk about later as well, he also talked about transmutation. Was it transmutation or transubstantiation? One of them is to do... It could be transubstantiation. So it's religious, isn't it, I think. Yeah. Well, it is because... because and I, I don't mean this with any disrespect, but when it comes to transubstantiation, the turning of the blood into wine, the bread into flesh or whatever it is, it's a good sell job. <laughs> it is, it is. It's probably one of the best uh, sales jobs ever. Is that the aim is to um, change the state of reality at each point, which is to uh, either inf- to influence someone to take certain action. But mm-hmm. ultimately, it is, and especially if you are involved in the actual product itself, is that you want, you are changing a customer from one state to another state, ultimately. And so knowing what that person is, is uh, the journey that they need to be taken upon, taken along to, to, make, to have that transformation, that's good copy. And bad copy will be where you are, and, this, and it comes down to research and knowing your audience and knowing the product and knowing all those elements is that do you answer? Do are you um, do, are you articulating the thing that the audience actually wants? Are you able to overcome certain objections that people will have 
uh, as to your product or just in general to um, the industry that you're in? Do they have preconceptions? So it's very much, it's important. People who don't bad copy, even when it's going to the right people, is is copied that where the copywriter has not stood in the shoes of the end user. And it's pretty obvious that there's either going to be disrespect or there's no real connection with a human being, with trying to empathise with what that individual is trying to achieve. And by understanding, the more the best copywriters do understand and are able to inhabit the end user and to understand and to second guess their uh, objections, to also understand their motivations, to understand the influences, their worldview. Knowing that copy, you will, you will always write better copy the more that you understand the end user. So in keeping with taking our listeners on a journey through this podcast, mm. and, and also alchemy, mm. what would be your number one tip and, and recommended uh, further reading slash resources in this respect? I think that I mean, it's, it's very difficult. That I mean, there's a whole bunch of books I can recommend. It's, there's, and a lot of them are very old and they haven't changed. I mean, that's why I say the principles haven't really changed. There are no new... I don't think, I can't think of any new books about copywriting, directly about copywriting, in the last 30 or 40 years, mm-hmm. which have really added anything to, specifically about... about Until uh, your one comes along, of course. No, 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 God, oh, absolutely not, no. Um, there are books like, there are books about, and I'm fascinated by the subject, uh, um, neuromarketing, about um, cognitive psychology, um, neural science, where it's looking at how people actually, the brain um, perceives words, how it is persuaded, how it, um, uh, and the behavior of an individual. So I, any books, and and we can put this, um, we can put a link on um, at the end of this to discuss and I can give a list of books um, which are in that vein. One, I'm just off the top of my head. There is um, Robert Caldini's Influence, which is huge, um, all about uh, what do they call it? Not neural economics. It's uh, behavioural economics. It says how do people? How do people? Why do people take action? And he talks a lot about empathy. He talks about reciprocity, which is you give something away in order to encourage someone to look more favorably upon you. And this again is something I, I will go into in, in, in more detail in the future. So Caldini is a good one. I mentioned Stephen King. The classics are, there's um, Capels, um, David Ogilvy. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite, even though he didn't never wrote a book, was um, Gary Halbert. Mm-hmm. who had the Gary Halbert letter and he was one of the best um, copywriters of all time He's and there's an entire resource on the internet as well yes there is yep. so we can put that down as well the GaryHalbertLetter.com and I'm pretty sure all of his original letters are up there I used to one of the best one of the things that I, I still is finding good ads is finding good examples of, of, of direct mail <laughs> was that your, your your stomach or was your computer that was my Skype oh your Skype hello mm. um, so it would be to collect together create swipe files of the best copy out there now it's sometimes if it, when you begin when you get when you're starting it may be a bit difficult to actually figure out which the best the good ads are and the good direct mail but there are I can we can give some examples and I'll, I'll think for the next podcast, I'll put together some ideas for this. Mm-hmm. Um, finding out classic ads. So, but last night I was, for example, I was w- looking through, and this does sound very odd, I was looking through Photoplay from 1927. Now, Photoplay was a gossip magazine all for Hollywood in, obviously, in the 1920s, and it would have a mixture of... Um, it was targeted, I think, at people who were coming into Hollywood wanting to be actors and actresses. 
So they would have gossip about it would have um, gossip about new productions, about the latest styles, hairstyles and clothes. It would talk about um, go- and, and the actual gossip. And the ads in there are absolutely fantastic. That everything uh, from how to straighten bow legs and um, <laughs> what is it? Bow legs and what's the opposite of bow leg? If you're not, you're bow legged, not need. There's an ad about bow legged, how to stop being bow legged or not need. There's it how to straighten your nose, straighten your, increase the size of your lips. But all these things which. You can find parallels today. There's, yeah, there was, on the front page of the Daily Mail. Yeah, there's weight, there's weight loss. There's and it's just a fantastic um, resource when you know what you're looking for of amazing ads. And this was is something we will look at in a in a future podcast. You, you spoke about uh, neuromarketing a little bit there. There's a yeah. bit of science in there, but let's yeah. talk a little bit about the graft and the craft. So, what process do you go through when writing yeah. copy? And also, do you have any um, uh, particular to you practices like I, I know you're very fond of pencils you write only in pencils <laughs> anything like that okay yeah no I think that's, it's, it's a good question I think everyone's different I have always um, written in longhand first and that's not because mm-hmm. I'm kind of a techno numpty because I'm, I'm not really I've always used even from like the mid 80s when I got a uh, was it the mid 80s no late 80s I actually applied for a grant from the Prince's Trust and I got a couple of hundred quid and bought an Amstrad nice. <laughs> uh, word process and wrote some of my first, um, my first experimental novel on it. Uh, so even then, and I have got the floppy disks. They're not even, they won't work anymore. They won't work anymore, I know, but I can just like frame them or something. But um, no, I've always written longhand. That may come from being a, write, being whatever, a poet writer. So I used to write longhand. Um, also because one of the big things of good copy is, and I mentioned it before about envelope copy, headlines, is that some that they can be some of the most powerful, especially in a short ad, or if you want so- someone to read a direct mail piece, that the headline is very, very important. So one of the things I will do early on is to actually write dozens, even hundreds of headlines um, just to start to try and encapsulate the angle that I'm going to take. This will all be based upon target market. So I will always want to know as much as I can about who my end user is. And so anyway, that's why I always encourage people to uh, create customer profiles, avatars, whatever you want to call them, is to really get to understand the end user. The more that you can understand that, you can then start to understand what kind of language do they use? What kind of frustrations do they have? What kind of hopes and dreams do they have? And all that kind of stuff. And then you are trying to then um, encapsulate those in a headline. So I will work on headlines to begin with. Most of them won't be used or the headlines, some of the headlines might be used for uh, subheads throughout copy. Mm-hmm. But I'll always keep stuff. I always say to any copywriter, don't worry, it doesn't matter how much you write, nothing is ever wasted because you can always return to it. Everything that you write is is getting you to understand. Getting you to the point where you've finished this copy. Yeah. So I would do a lot of um, research. So I'll look at our com- competitors. I would look at swipe files. So I'll, I would look at other advertising in that same space, see what other people are saying, so that I can then know either whether I want to go contrary to what most people are saying, or um, is there some, uh, can I pick up any hints on, if someone's doing a lot of advertising and they've got the same message, then obviously that's working, um, or it should be working. If they've got any sense, they will be spending loads of money on advertising. If there's a certain message that I see that is coming up again and again, I will um, use that and I'll, I'll write down, I won't use it, but I will note that and see what that is. I will also, these days I'll look on, do a lot of online research. I will look at existing books on Amazon that may be on a specific subject, if mm-hmm. it's a new subject. I'll actually look at the ti- the titles of bestsellers to see a good bestseller will inevitably, in the non-fiction especially, will have a pretty good title, quirky title, mm-hmm. or one that's benefit-driven. So I will do a lot of 
looking at that and I'll collect together examples of that. Then there is a certain, uh, how can I say this? There's a certain structure to, depending on what you're writing, if it's a long piece um, or an ad, there are certain elements you want in every single um, piece. So there are lots of acronyms that people have come up with over the years. There's AIDA, Attention, Interest, Desire, Action. And that's chronologically, you know, you get someone's attention, mm -hmm. then you uh, stir up their interest. Mm -hmm their desire, and then you get the call action. There's also the four Ps that I was taught, which is picture, promise, proof, push, which is essentially the same thing, but it's, you've got yep. the proof is the added credibility. So you want social proof, you want testimonials, you want um, track record or whatever it might be. So there are ways of structuring a, um, a piece of copy, and th there are lots of different different types of copy obviously but essentially what you want to do is grab someone's attention show them there's there's um uh, something's in it for them and it's worth them reading more and then by the end of it to take a certain action so always remember what your what the end result is start with the end result i will also another thing i will always do and this is putting myself in the shoes of the end user i will try and be like my mr grumpy pants i will try and come up with as many objections I will almost be the worst Trying to critic. knock down your own... Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I will try and destroy it. I will try and uh, come up with as many excuses. I will be as cynical and sceptical as I possibly can. Never. Yep. Never. And going back to when I used to open the post, I used, it was nice seeing all the uh, orders coming in. Equally, I used to love seeing all the complaints because people would, would send in complaints. <laughs> they would send in, I don't know, ripped up, rip, 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 rip. They would just, um, like a coupon would be ripped up. Why, I don't know. Some people, and I, I suspect they would be, I don't want to, a certain type of, maybe they used to be teachers or wanted to be teachers. They would have a red pen and they would mark up my copy and say, spelling mistake, grammatical error, syntax, and so the that's where source. it comes from. And I would get, I would get, no, that comes from somewhere else, me, <laughs> me doing, I would actually get a great sense of, and people would underline, I don't believe a word of it. And for me, it's like, it's got, I now understand why points in that promotion, the copy that I've used, where it didn't work, where some people, even if they, you know, I'd have to take it with a pinch of salt, if, is that why is it that they found that particular point um, offensive or they found it uh, unbelievable offensive. so I would look through it and think I could take those those points and try and uh, second guess them the next time I wrote it so objections writing down objections is another thing so I think that anyone who wants to write better copy just come up with a massive list of objections that's a good another tip. thing is come up with a massive list of the benefits of your product or service that's another good tip that is a good tip and then just write your benefits down and this is not features, this is not how big it is, how wide it is, how much it weighs, and all that kind of stuff. Benefits are what will it help the mm -hmm. end user to do? Will it make them happier, uh, sadder, um, not sadder? Uh, will it get rid of pain? Will it save them money? Will it um, save them, um, uh, make them money? Will it make them taller? Will it make them uh, more attractive to the opposite sex? Come up with as many of the benefits, the end ultimate benefits of your product or service, and then put them in a descending order of importance and if you put your pack if you if you if you write your benefits pretty much in that order also with the attendant objections that people may have along the way then you're pretty much halfway to a very very good pack so that thought we've started very broadly in this mm. first installment in this series mm. but that thought is that is that what uh, the distilled essence of copywriting is the one that you hope listeners will take away and uh, ruminate on the most if nothing else understand study there's a great marketer that i used to know who uh, john gomez and he always used to say that great marketing great copy is it's a psychological study the more that you can understand the motivations and the psychology and the emotions of your end user your ideal end user that makes the better marketer. It makes the better publisher. It makes the better copywriter. So all I would say, if you take anything from what I've just said about copywriting, it's nothing to do with writing. It's to do with uh, understanding human psychology. 
Okay, so uh, listeners, what would you like to hear for about Nick to talk about in the next couple of podcasts? I think I'd like to hear more about structure, especially salutations and headlines. Maybe you want to hear a little bit more about Mark Ford. Or, uh, again, another thing I'd like to hear about is uh, tonality and voice, because as I'm sure you're already familiar with listening to The Late Show before, Nick can be very contrary. It's very disruptive and lots of colloquialism and implied benefit and more. So this this kind of thing. Let us know what you'd like yeah. Nick to interrogate. I think this is an interrogation, yeah. dissection. Next, uh, by emailing him at nick at canonrepublishing.com. And what's your, what's your Twitter, Nick? What's your Twitter handle? Um, they can go to um, uh, Nick Upstart, at Nick Upstart. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you very much, Nick. We've, uh, we've referenced Len Dayton in this uh, <laughs> podcast already. He wrote Funeral in Berlin. Very good. And Are you going to Berlin? Just, I'm something? not going to oh, Berlin, but we're about to it? sign off with the music from another oh, ad- film adapted for Michael Caine. Well, yes, Kane. we are. Um, it's uh, Get Carter. Absolutely.